0: All right. Well, and th- we had a good morning so far, right? Yeah. Holy moly, that was fantastic. Um, for any of you watching right now, you might see behind me a hot pink shopping cart and some produce on a chair. I want you to all just discuss what you think happened here this morning with the kids that involved a shopping cart and some produce. So I'm not going to give you any more information than that, so try to figure that out. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, oh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter four, uh, verses thirty. Verse, and we're going to verse thirty-two. First, before before I do that, or before we get into it, a uh, couple things. You check. Okay. A couple things. Um, we are in discussion with Southeast to replace five rows in the center with chairs that we can move around and do however we want in here when we gather. Um, one of the things I don't like about this room for times like this is that it doesn't feel like a class. It feels like a lecture, and, and everyone's just kind of facing this way. It would be better to kind of get in a circle or have tables to write your notes on and stuff. So that's uh, much much more likely to be happening now. So, so that will be kind of cool to be able to turn this room into uh, whatever we need it to for the first five rows of the center section. So we're moving along with that. Also, if any of you guys here or any of you guys watching showed uh, some interest to me in Man Camp, I had expressed to you last week that an email would be coming out this week. It hasn't gone out yet. So if you didn't get anything, that's why. It hasn't gone out. It's coming from Steve Meeks. Um, I just sent him all the email addresses of people who want to come, and he's going to be sending that out in his, in his good timing. So that's why you didn't see it. So, um, okay, I think that's it as far as um, announcements for today. So, let's go ahead and turn to Acts 4. Um, And again, this is, I'm going to start talking. I'll talk until you raise your hand or you have a comment. This is a discussion, right? I'm going to share some things, but please ask a question, give a comment, whatever. People who are watching, they're going to be doing the same thing. They're going to try to pause it and... And then talk about it. This is this is what we do, right? We talk about this stuff. It's not just we're not just receiving; we're engaging. Um, all right. So last week uh, was a Torah service. Week before that, um, I had sent out a question for you all to talk about the gift of repentance. Now we're not going to go over that. But I'm really curious to know, maybe we can talk about this over at Oneg, I'm really curious to know what kind of conversations you had about the gift of repentance, because we had a good conversation in our group, Um, I had some good conversations in the weeks surrounding it, Um, so I'm I'm just curious to see what you guys had concluded, or what new thoughts you had about it, Um, so that'd be great to to dive into that later. Um, and then the two, there was two words we learned last time we were in Acts. One was koinonia, which is a Greek for fellowship, which denotes a joint participation, right? There's a, there's a pledge. There's something that is placed in the hand. It is an active thing. It isn't just being together, right? It is, it is something where we are engaging with one another, this word koinonia. And the other word was didache, which is instruction, and it's to train or accustom someone to something. So it's it's the same kind of word you would use with your livestock when you're training your livestock. You're doing this re- repetitious task. You're uh, starting them off easy, but then making it more difficult, adding burden to the beast, whatever. So this this idea of didache or instruction is isn't just talking. It's showing and doing too. So it's kind of like show and tell, basically. So okay, so. This week, a new term that I'd like you to, to learn is actually not in this portion of Acts, but it is in a portion of Torah that is related to a scene that happens here. And the word, the Greek word is carry. That's resh yud, and it means contrary or um, opposing or uh, stubbornness. Or a kind of indifference, I think, is probably the best word we have to, to translate that word carry into. And, and I'll, you'll see where this is relevant later on in Acts. But this word carry in Leviticus 26 means contrary, opposing, stubbornness, or even by chance. Just kind of like it just happens, right? So it's, it's, it's indifferent, I think, is probably the best word we have in English. Okay. So, go ahead and open your Bibles, if you haven't already, and let's go ahead and and go through it. Um, But before we do that, let's just go ahead and say a little quick prayer, and we'll dive in. Dear Father, we thank you for today, your Shabbat. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Hebrew language. We also thank you for the Greek language. You were brilliant in how you chose those two to bring a fullness, uh, a kind of technicolor image to our minds of what the truth is that you have for us to, to to search out in Scripture. We thank you for that. And we thank you that we have the time and and the technology and the ability and the space and the people who are interested in actually diving in and digging in and seeing what we can find. So please, Father, reveal to us what we, you would have us know uh, that, that could potentially transform us today and make us different today um, than we have been before. Thank you. In Yeshua's name, amen. Okay. Chapter 4, verse 32, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Okay, I need someone to pass some papers out who can do that. Okay, I need two, two of you. Eden, Give them to, maybe like, I think I printed out 30 of them. So try to share if you can, uh, but go down to different aisles. What they're handing out is a passage from the Talmud, which is the writings of the sages. It's from Perkei Avot, the Ethics of the Fathers, chapter 5, verse 10. And it is a critique on various economic models of ancient times. We've talked a little bit about how in I think it was Acts 2 or end of Acts 1, there's there's this passage that kind of looks like they're talking about a socialism or a communism, this communal collective type of lifestyle. It's not what they were talking about. But I know it's used by some people to say, hey look, even Yeshua or the apostles, they were, they were doing this sort of thing. Like, well, not exactly, right? Here is is the passage, and and, and I'm just going to touch on this and then we'll move on, but I want you to have this, and this was included in the email yesterday too, a PDF, so anyone watching, you can print that off uh, yourself too. So here it goes. There are four types of people. There is the man that says, what's mine is mine, and what's yours is yours. This kind of man is neither good nor bad, but some say this is the type of person that lived in Sodom, and we know what happened there. There is the man who says, what's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine. This man is a kind of ignoramus. He's he's unlearned, right? He's he's not smart. There is the man that says, what's mine is yours, and what's yours is yours. This is a righteous man. Finally, there's the man that says, what's mine is mine, and what's yours is mine. This is a wicked man. Okay? Okay? We could take these and slot in any type of political or economic ideology that's, that's currently in vogue these days. We can slot them into these. But I, I think you would agree that the, the, the kind of people that were in the, the Messianic community in the first century was number three. What's mine is yours, and what's yours is yours. This was a voluntary, right? Um, there, are, there are certain ideologies that say what's yours is ours, That's still wicked. It is what's mine is yours. That's how we should lead and how we should be as a community. Agreed? Okay, so keep this in mind. And maybe even stick this in your Bible right there in Acts 4 so you can come back to this when you read that. Okay, moving on. Verse 33. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the feet of the apostles. And they would be given to each person as he had need. That, that uh, uh, section there, lay them at the apostles' feet, this is an ancient Jewish idiom. Okay? This, this, had a, this was a, a turn of phrase that meant what? What do you think that meant? Any guesses? Okay, surrender to what? The apostles' authority, exactly, yes. This was, this was a phrase that meant I am placing this, what I bring to you, under your authority, right? Whether it's money, lifestyle, yourself, your, whatever it is, whether material possessions or your time, whatever. If you're laying it at their feet, that denotes I'm placing it under your authority. I want you to decide how it is this is to be used, I want you to decide, I trust you, how it is I'm to be used, right? So that's what this means. And it's kind of a big deal, right? It is something that you would, in the ancient times, you would call an audience with the apostles. You would say, okay, I would like to do this. So they would meet with you, and you would come, and you would lay this at their feet, right? And they would at this time, it was probably in the upper room that they would meet, because that's kind of where they were gathering regularly uh, indoors, So this is important, right? And we see this phrase happen a few times here. Okay, so the first part from verse 32 to 35, we're seeing a description of the community in Jerusalem, how it is they operated together. Not all of them were doing this. Not all of them were selling their possessions and coming together because we know later on in Scripture there were people who owned houses. They were meeting there. So there were some who were keeping property. There were some, whatever. So this was voluntary. It was not compulsory. It was not expected. These are people moving into town from out of town. All these Galileans coming in saying, okay, I've sold everything. Here it is. I want you to, to, to decide where it goes, and we'll all stay together and be dependent on one another. Again, it wasn't everybody. Then we see in the next two verses an exemplary individual. So we see the community, how it operates, an exemplary individual in verse 36 and 37, and then we get into its contrast, Right? So these two verses of the, for the exemplary individual, verse 36 and 37. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas or Barnaba by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, owned a tract of land. So he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he had a tract of land. That doesn't mean he sold everything. He sold his tract of land brought it to the apostles' feet and said, basically, I want you to decide how this money is spent. Mm. All right, now we get into the contrast. <clears throat> so he did, he did a thing, and he, he said to the, to the apostles what he did, and he was honest about it. Okay. Verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, or in the Hebrew, Hanania. With his wife, uh, Safira or Shafira, sold a piece of property. So stop right there. It's likely that this was a wealthy couple. Um, their names connoted this. There was it was a hint. Channania or Ananias meant God's favor. The Lord has favored. So we can presume this is someone who had lots of favor. May have had uh, had been given provision and property and wealth and title, things like that. Uh, there, uh, and then um, Shafira or Sapphira meant beautiful. And that name we know from the history is a name that was almost exclusively, exclusively given to daughters of wealth. So Sapphira, Shafira was a, a unique name. And when you saw it in ancient writings or on, on um you know, chiseled into the rock or wherever it was for uh, it was the name of wealthy women. Okay, so we can we know we know this about them already, or we can presume this about them already. They sold a piece of property, and hid some of the proceeds for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. <clears throat> Have they sinned yet? No. So far, no sin has taken place. There's a word here that's hinting at what the sin will be. And that word is, in this translation, hid. Your translation might say set aside, or I, I can't remember what they all, all the different ones say. But no sin has taken place yet. <clears throat> but he did lay it at the apostles' feet, right? So we know he called an audience with the apostles. He was going to do this thing. And he has laid laid this money at the apostles' feet. Okay? Didn't have to. Like I said, not everyone was doing this. All the people who were coming in from Jerusalem, from, from the Galilee, most of them were doing it because they had no place to go, right? But people who were in the vicinity probably didn't. So this was not expected. So they wanted to join the communal part of this messianic community, all right? When you give over your your belongings, your assets to someone to decide how it's used, you're doing that, you're saying, I want you to decide how this is spent based on the needs of the community. But by doing that, I'm also placing myself in the category of people who will need something. Am I not? Because I'm giving over all of my things, right? Does that make sense, Eden? You give your stuff. You're no longer no one who can actually provide. You're going to need from the community too. Right? Good. So so they're placing themselves in this category. They want to be a part of this communal aspect of the Messianic community. But I think that they did not do it out of love for others or fear of God. This was the deception. And Peter, who had been given eyes to see this, he didn't have to ask questions. God didn't tell him directly, so far as we know. He could see, oh, there's something off here about this offering. In verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the proceeds of the land? In the next verse, he's basically saying to him, look, you don't have to do this. While it remained unsold, did you not remain your did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he as he heard these words, Ananias went to jail. No, he didn't go to jail. <laughs> He collapsed and died, and great fear came over all who heard it. So where is is the sin? I know that a lot of the resources we have that that help us to understand this passage, um, and even some of the kids' activity sheets, um, say that the sin is what? What is the sin here? Where, where, how did they sin? What, what did they do wrong that would, that, it would, that would lead to death, like instantaneous death? They yes. Lied. They lied. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't that they stole necessarily because they could have very well have kept a portion of the proceeds and brought the, the, what was remaining to the, the apostles to put under their authority. That would have been totally acceptable. Barnabas just sold a tract of land and the proceeds from that. He didn't bring everything. So they they were deceiving the community. They thought they were deceiving the community. They wanted to be in this this group of people, maybe for status. Maybe they wanted to be thought of as holier than others because we see Barnabas as as an exemplary individual who sold the thing, came into the community, um, and had kind of a dependence on them. You have a question? Or they just could have wanted fame for the good the deed they did. Yeah, or they wanted to be praised. They wanted to be praised for this good thing that they did, right? Leviticus 26. Okay, let's go to Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26, verses 23 and 24, and then also 27 and 28. Where are we here? Okay. This and this goes to the this goes to the sin. This goes to why it was so necessary that they needed to be eliminated from the community. This is a young messianic community. If you uh, let's say if you are in the womb and you get a scratch how different is the outcome from if you're my age and you get a scratch. A scratch in utero equals what? Could equal death. A small thing, a small, you you see what I'm saying? Like I'm I'm not a doctor, but a small, something that would be small, considered small, to a young, developing human has much, much greater consequences, negative consequences, than something that is much more mature, an adult. A scratch, I get a scratch, it's no problem. I clean it off, it's fine. But something that happens to a child, to something especially in the womb, is very detrimental. I think that's what's going on here. This is a young community. Anything anything toxic that could come into the community could do much more damage to it at this stage in its development than at any other stage. And so this, is, this, I think, is the point of the harshness of this punishment being eliminated from this group. Okay, so let's read here. Leviticus 23, or 26, verse 23 and 24. And if by these things you are not turned to me, but act with hostility against me, the word hostility there is that word keri, which is indifference or stubbornness, then I will act with keri against you with indifference or stubbornness. Um, And I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. So whatever sin it was, I will multiply the punishment of it by seven if you are indifferent to me. Go down to 26 and 27, or 27 and 28, I'm sorry. Yet if in spite of this you do not obey me, but act with carry against me, that's that indifference, then I will act with furious indifference against you, and I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 31 says... At the end of that passage, Hebrews 10, 26-31, it says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. (laughs) It's dreadful to be against God. Luke put this here at the beginning of this passage because of what was going to happen next in Acts, right? Because of something that Gamaliel will say that is very much in line with this idea, like, you don't want to go against God. Right? Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted to deceive, defraud, do something. They were lying about the kind of status they wanted to put themselves under, either because they were trying to be praised for it or wanted some kind of recognition for their holiness. But God knew, and Peter recognized this, these people with this motive cannot continue. This needs to be rooted out, annihilated. And so far as we know, this is the only time where a lie ended up with just immediately dropping dead, right? So we didn't have to have this example anymore. This was one and done. This is how serious it is when you're entering into community, a fellowship, a young group of people who are close, who are intimate, who share everything. The motivation needs to be good, right? We know this from our home fellowships, Right? It's so imp- we're doing this in this building because we know we need to vet people who are coming in. And so we know where to put them so that it's healthy for them, for the fellowship, for the community at large. And when people come in who are just not, either not ready or they're just not healthy, or, or, or rather they, they would be bringing in something that, would, that could be toxic, we'll see it and we'll say, bless you. Maybe you need to go somewhere else. <laughs> Just as an example, right? I'm not saying we shun people from coming. That's not my, my point. But we are. We need to be careful to protect and fight for the intimacy and the closeness that we have. Okay. Moving on. Uh, verse 6. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now, an interval of about three hours elapsed, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me "'Whether you sold the land for this price?' "'And she said, "'Yes, for that price.' "'Then Peter said to her, "'Why is it that you have agreed together "'to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? "'Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband "'are at the door, and they will carry you out as well.' "'And immediately she collapsed at his feet and died, "'and the young men came in and found her dead, "'and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband.' In Daniel Lancaster's series on, on Acts, uh, the uh, Chronicles of the Apostles, he, he wrote this, and I'm gonna, I'll share it with you now. In the days of the apostles, Jewish people often vowed property to the temple. So this is going to the whole, again, expounding on what this misdeed was. Donating the proceeds or of sale to the temple treasury. Ananias seems to have undertaken a similar vow, swearing to surrender the full amount of sale to the community. He may or may not have taken an actual vow in the name of the Lord, but he made his intention clear. After the sale, he sought an audience with the apostles. Again, calling the audience, doing this this kind of ceremonious type of thing probably. At that early time, the 12 still handled the finances and acted as a conduit between donors and recipients in the community of the, uh, of the poor, the evionim. Ev- the apostles received Ananias somewhere in Jerusalem, perhaps in the upper room, that they adopted as their place of assembly outside the temple. Ananias went before the court of apostles and made a legal declaration stating that he and his wife had sold their property and were donating the full proceeds to the community, perhaps in fulfillment of a vow. Then he placed the sum of the apostles' feet, indicating that he thereby discharged it into their care. He he expected some word of gratitude or praise. Instead, Simon Peter charged him with deceit, saying, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the proceeds of the land? By means of some spiritual insight through the Spirit of God, Simon Peter saw the deceit. Like his master Yeshua, who did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man, Simon Peter saw past the false piety and pretense. He blamed the deceit on satanic treachery. Satan had deceived Ananias. There was a seed. Satan planted a seed of a lie in Ananias that led to him doing this thing Um, into thinking that he could swindle God. Simon Peter reminded him that he was not under any compulsion to contribute the proceeds of the sale. The money was his to keep or contribute as he saw fit. Simon Peter declared, you have not lied to men, but to God. Who, who did Ananias fear? Man. Who did he not fear? God. He did not fear God. He feared man. Right? I need someone to pass out some more papers. Two different people. Lola and Maya. Okay, what they're passing out is a menorah pattern comparing Ananias and Sapphira with the stick gatherer from Numbers 15. Now, this is a menorah pattern that Grant had created uh, when he did the Acts study uh, 10 years ago. I don't know that he shared this in the notes of that teaching, back then, but he, he shared with me what that menorah pattern was and how we could compare these two. Because these are the only two where we see uh, a sin of, uh, one, of the, one of the Ten Commandments being violated and resulting in death, right? So we can compare these two. And again, this was sent out in an email um, yesterday, I think. Uh, so there's a link for you guys to print this off, those of you who are watching. So here's, and I'll just run down this real quick, but keep this also, and maybe this can be a point of discussion um, we have later. Um, so the stick gatherer, if you recall, was, gather, was out gathering wood on Shabbat, which is what? That's work, right? You're not to work on Shabbat. Both of these you see occurred on, after Shavuot, the stick gatherer and Ananias and Sapphira. Each of them violated one of the Ten Commandments. The stick gatherer violated the Fourth Commandment. For the stick gatherer, it was open sin. Everyone could, people saw it. They said, hey, he's doing something wrong. It was based on a physical desire. He he, he needed to do this to, you know, stay warm or to cook, all these kinds of things, a physical desire. The punishment was meted out by whom? The people stoned him, and only one person died. The stick gatherer, who I believe is not named. Moses had to inquire of God what to do. It was a sin against God. The sin was disobedience. Um, The body of the individual was carried out before death, so he was carried outside the camp and stoned. And this is an example of putting the Torah to the test, putting the, the law to the test. Here's a law, here's a commandment, you put it to the test. Okay, now Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. This also occurred after Shavuot. They violated the ninth commandment. It was a hidden sin. They hid a portion in their home. I think one of the coloring pages that, that maybe some of you kids have, or adults, maybe you adults like to color it while we do our teaching, um, is a picture of, of Ananias with a little pot, and he's like putting some of the coins into this pot on the mantle. right? So it's a hidden sin. It's a soulish desire. This isn't a physical desire. It's soulish. so something about ego, maybe, or, or a desire for status, something like that. Who executes the punishment? God. They drop dead, and two people die here. Peter, instead of inquiring of God, he intuits from God through the Spirit. It is it is also a sin against God. The sin is deceit, hypocrisy, indifference, maybe even. Um, their bodies were carried out after they died, and they put the whole the Spirit of the Lord to the test in verse nine. So we're seeing some patterns here. I would encourage you to look back at that passage in Numbers 15, look, read before and after, see what else is, is going on in the development of the people of God in that place that would necessitate a, that kind of death or punishment for a violation of a commandment. Okay. Any questions or comments so far? Okay. In uh, Deuteronomy 29, 18 to 21, uh, speaking of indifference, this is is an important passage to recall or to remember. Deuteronomy 29, 18 to 21. Let's see. Okay, Deuteronomy 29, 18 to 21. So that there will not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. Was Ananias and Sapphira's deed a a root bearing poisonous fruit? Yes. Was that something that could be allowed to exist in a young community that was needing to be open with each other and intimate. No, no. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, "I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. I'm good. This, this is this is the logic of disobedience. I'm okay. I know I'm doing wrong, but actually, I'm okay. It's gonna be all right." in order to, to destroy the watered land with the dry. The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man, and every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. So, so let's be careful not to be indifferent <laughs> to God, um, because he's just, and he cares about his people especially when his people are vulnerable, especially when his people need to be fought for. We need to not be indifferent to God's will. Okay, so we've gone over Ananias and Sapphira. We've learned the lesson. Then we move into the, we, talk, we see the righteousness of the apostles, and then the, the Sadducees being jealous, the arrest, and all that stuff, right? So let's, we'll move on to the, into that now. Um, verse 12 at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And increasingly, believers in the Lord, large numbers of men and women, were being added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any of them. Just his shadow. Like That's incredible. The people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together as well, bringing people who were sick and tormented with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. So similarly to how this whole section started at the end of verse 4, we're seeing a description of the the apostles, what they were doing, that they were gaining in in popularity and esteem amongst the people. We'll see those words, the people, a lot here. That is important with how it's important as it relates to how the Sadducees were responding to what was going on. So we see a description here, and then, uh, and then we move now into the Saddukim, the Sadducees, and their jealousy. So, okay, so here we go. So we, so we know that they're doing some great things. They've continued to preach in the name of Yeshua, even though they were told not to. They're just bold, fearless which I think is something that comes out of a healthy community. Peter's boldness, I don't know that he would have been able to be as bold as he has been on his own. He was emboldened by the strength of his community, by the oneness of heart and soul of the people he was sharing life with. Right? That was vitally important. So, verse 17. But the high priest stood up, along with his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, the Tzadokim, and they were filled with jealousy. Okay. What do you know about the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Okay, one believed in the resurrection of the dead. One did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Okay, what else? What have we been told, or what, uh, what, what is the common understanding of the, I don't know, your, your just kind of impression of the Pharisees and Sadducees? That they are, what? The they're the villains. Yeah, they're, they're the villains of the story, right? Okay, that's that's important for us, especially in this in our context, to acknowledge. That's that's kind of what we've been told. They're legalistic, but to the point of uh, the loss that they man-made. man-made Who? Both, I'd say. Both? Okay. There was a... Adherence to one, uh, I believe it was the Sadducees did not at all consider any of the oral Torah as beneficial. The Pharisees, though, were, the Pharisees were actually the, um, uh, what would you call it, The, the predecessor to Rabbinic Judaism. And the writings we have in the Talmud, in the oral Torah, that most encapsulate the thoughts and, and, and um, eschatology and theology of the Pharisees was perkei avot, the ethics of the fathers. And many of us have read those. And are they not amazing? They are beautiful, right? So the Pharisees, the Pharisaic way of viewing things, was much more in line with many of the people, the characters we see in the Greek scriptures, so think of the Sadducees and Pharisees at this time as a kind of ancient two-party system. Okay, They are actually opposed to one another for some pretty significant theological reasons. The high priest, who was the highest-ranking the highest member of the Sanhedrin at that time, was a Sadducee. The head of the Pharisees, or the opposition party, so to speak, and subordinate to the Sadducees was Gamaliel. He was the president of... President of the Pharisaic party um, and the head of the Beit dean of the Sanhedrin, so the court. He was the head of the court, but he was still subservient to the priestly class, which were the Sadducees. Right now, that moved and changed. Whatever after seventy A.D., the Sadducees even disappeared. We had no Sadducees after that. So there was there was this tension between these two groups. Those those that was the focus especially of the Sadducees who were less afraid of God and more afraid of men. So the Sadducees were enraged with jealousy because the teachings of the followers of Yeshua, were they they jealous of and threatened by that small community? What would you say? No, I would say no. They weren't threatened by the community. What they were threatened by was that what they taught lined up with what? The Pharisees, what the Pharisees were saying. The Sadducees' enemy were the Pharisees. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in the coming of Messiah. They believed in an undying spirit within man. And everything that these followers of Yeshua were preaching and teaching lined up with a Pharisaic uh, belief system. That is what they were jealous of. That's what they were threatened by. Here is some people, another revolt, another uprising that lines up with the opposition party. We can't can't allow that to to go on. So what do we do? Eliminate it, right? Because we're more afraid of men than God. So this growing community, while not necessarily a direct threat to the power of the Sadducees, reinforced this doctrine that they, just were, that they were utterly against. So that, that's, that is the, the drama here between the Sadducees, Pharisees, as represented by Gamaliel, and this small, young, growing Messianic community. Okay. So they laid hands on the apostles, so they forcefully seized them and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and leading them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple area, the whole message of this life. So from the apostles' perspective, the hand of God is coming out saying, Okay, you're okay. Keep doing what you're doing. So they're just like, Okay, okay. Go out, preach in the name of Yeshua. Like, like For them, this is like, this whole drama between the Sadducees and Pharisees is just, is just peripheral. It's like, What you do you guys, like this is not important. We are here to talk about the life, the way of life that we learned about in the Didache, not the way of death, the way of life. This is what we've called to and nothing can stop us. Clearly, we were in prison, we got out. Miracle. So they're just going about doing their thing. Verse 21, upon hearing this, they entered into the temple area about daybreak and began to teach. So it was like, okay, they didn't waste any time. They just went right back to it, not fearing men. Um, Now when the high priest and his associates came, this is again in verse 21, they called the council together, that is, all the senate of the sons of Israel, um, and sent orders to the prison for them to be brought um, so when they, getting this whole council together, then they're bringing in Gamaliel, the the Pharisees who are heads of the court at this time, so they're expanding this, right, they're bringing them in to, to discuss this, uh, or to, to, to give a judgment on it. Verse 22, but the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported saying, we found the prison locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. And what they were probably perplexed by was what kind of message this was sending. Like, this is, we're trying to make, a, we're trying to make an example of these people. And they got out. Like, politically, that's, that's bad news, right? Verse 25, but someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple area and teaching the people, doing exactly the thing you told them not to do. Uh, Even worse, right? Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the, what does it say? The people. They were afraid of the people, that they might be stoned. Okay, verse 27. Verse 27. When they had brought them, they had them stand before the council, the Sanhedrin, right? The high priest interrogated them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name. So he's there standing amongst the Sanhedrin, saying, We, right? Like the power of government is saying, We told you not to do this. Um, And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Peter it has come so far from denying Yeshua much earlier in his, in his career to being so utterly bold that he stood before the high court. He stood before the council and didn't pull a single punch, did he? He said, we must obey God rather than men. Yeah, Jeffrey. You remember that? Talking about that? Yeah. And so Gamaliel derives his point later on from this statement that Peter makes. And we'll see it coming up. Peter continues, The God of our fathers raised up Yeshua, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. Like He's just like, he's like, I'm calling you out, guys. This is the Messiah. You killed him. We're going to obey God, not men. Like, I mean, he's so bold. He's the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Which is to say, not you. (laughs) Right? Man, Peter is... He is is my new hero now. (laughs) If he isn't your hero, maybe he should be. This This guy is just fantastic. All right, verse 33. But when they heard this, they became infuriated and nearly decided to execute them. Now this they is the high priest and his people, not the entire council. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. Now, it's understood through uh, through some history books that Gamaliel, though he wasn't in charge, he had such a high respect of the people, or he, he was respected and esteemed so highly by the people, he really was kind of the de facto head honcho. De facto head honcho? Is that, can I say that about... <laughs> something in scripture, he had, he had a measuredness about him. You can, you can picture the kind of person Gamaliel, the kind of man Gamaliel probably was. He was steady. He was intentional. He only spoke when he had something to say and you listened. He, you could tell that there was just wisdom oozing out of him. right? And the Sadducees, who really just wanted to hold on to power, were afraid of men. Because they were afraid of men, also probably feared him too. And so they would have taken his advice, but made it look like it was their idea. That sort of thing. That's the kind of dynamic that we're seeing here. Um, And he, Gamaliel, said to them, men of Israel. So so the apostles had gone out. Men of Israel, be careful as to what you are about to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Theudas is, there's a man by the name of Theudas who is talked about in some of the ancient Jewish histories who was a guy who, and I don't know if this is the same one because there was not 400 men. There was more like 40 people who went with him to to watch him do this thing. But get this. Theudas said, hey, come with me. Let's go to the river. I'll be able to split the waters and prove that I'm Messiah. Would you follow someone who said, hey, I can go to the river and split the water? Would you? Might you want to at least see what happens? Probably. Yeah, I'd I'd be like, "Mm, let's see how this goes. Maybe take some popcorn and watch this guy try to part the water. That was kind of a threat to them. And what happened to him is he was, his his head was cut off and his people dispersed and it came to nothing, right? So Theudis isn't known for having started some kind of movement. And after this, Gamaliel continues, Judas of Galilee appeared in the days of the census and drew some away some, away some people after him. He, was, he also perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So Judas of Galilee was actually the, the, the former of the zealots uh, that formed because of this tax census. That's how their group formed was a, a dispute about taxation. So that happened here. He was uh, he was executed, but it doesn't say his movement came to nothing. It said they were scattered because we still had the zealots during this time. But it appeared as though the zealots weren't really a threat politically to the Sadducees or Pharisees or anything else. So we had the Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, Herodians, and Zealots. Those were the five factions, with the Sadducees and Pharisees being more in ruling, uh, in ruling, ranking. So these are these two. He's saying, okay. Judas tried it, perished, died. Judas of Galilee tried it, perished, people were scattered. This group, their leader has perished. This this is probably going to come to nothing. So just pace yourselves, guys. Verse 38, And so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if the source of this plan or movement is men, it will be overthrown. But if the source is God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. And what do they know, because they know Torah, what do they know would happen if you go against God? Going back up. Where is it? It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if these things you do not learn your lesson regarding me, but you show hostility to me, then I will turn. will I will show furious indifference toward you, and I even I will strike you seven times for your sins. They know enough to know that you don't go against God. Verse forty. They followed his advice. They the uh, the head council, followed his advice. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Yeshua and then released them. So what did they do? They went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not stop teaching and preaching the good news of Yeshua as the Messiah. So, still, again, from their perspective, it's like this drama's going on with leadership, with government this stuff they're pulling us in saying and we're like well sorry we got to follow god not you and then they they deal with their drama internally and they're released and what do you what do they do they just go back to doing the thing they were doing because the angel of the lord said keep it up keep doing what you're doing do it you've been called do it do not fear men okay so there's only one one question we need to be asking as our food for today, who or what do we fear? Who do we fear? What do we fear? In general and in little things too. These people who were coming from Galilee into Jerusalem, selling everything they had, did that take courage to do that alone? Absolutely. So they had to lay down their fear of the unknown. Because they couldn't have known what was going to happen. They trusted and feared God. The Messianic community feared God, not men. They didn't fear the unknown. They uprooted their lives in Galilee and joined the Messianic community in Jerusalem. Peter feared who? Who did Peter fear? God. Who did he not fear? Men. In the form of what? The, the Sanhedrin. I mean, like, that is like, that is it. The Sanhedrin was it. If you were brought to, I mean, if, if, if you think they were humbled by coming to the 12 apostles and submitting to their authority, being called to the Sanhedrin was a big deal. They did not fear the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel feared who? God, not men. The Sadducees feared men, not God. Or they feared losing power, which is also kind of a fear of men. Ananias and Sapphira did not fear who? God. They, they were indifferent, right? Miracles had just taken place in this community, and they were indifferent to it. They had the logic of disobedience, like, I'm good, okay, yeah, this is wrong. They, they, surely they knew what they were doing, what doing was wrong, but they're like, I'm okay, we'll do this anyway. Totally unchanged by the miracles that had been taking place in the community. A toxic, toxic thing to, to be allowed to remain. Um, and perhaps Ananias and Sapphira feared authority, too. They didn't really want to put their stuff under the authority or themselves under the authority of the apostles. Maybe they didn't trust them. Maybe they, were, maybe they thought they were higher or, or better than the people in whose company they wanted to keep. Maybe We could, we could, we could talk a lot about that. Like, what, what was the dynamic going on there? And, and how does it relate to things that go on in our lives and at work or in our community in our family whatever? the 10 spies feared not only the what in the land the giants they could have also feared success and i've shared this with, with y'all before maybe last year sometime they the the, the the 10 spies were not um they were not just any guys they were holy men in Israel who were asked to go and spy out the land. These were, these were some of the top people in, in the tribes. What When they saw the land, what were they thinking they were going to have to give up to now be a nation? What did they have? What do we have in the wilderness? Do we have anything? Okay, so not a whole lot of material possession, but what is it we have in abundance when we're in the wilderness? What's that? Okay, freedom. Yeah, yeah. Time, okay. Who is with us in a big way in the wilderness? God. In the wilderness, these men had time on their hand to be in God's word, They didn't have to work. They could pray. They could read. They could just luxury. Yeah, it was hard conditions, but manna was falling from heaven. Like, you were just being fed. just, I don't have to work, right? So they didn't, they may have also, certainly they feared the giants, but I think also they probably feared success because then they were just going to become another nation. They would have to work, form infrastructure, form institutions, do business, build a house, have a family, have a community, all this stuff. It's just like, oh, why do we do that? Why don't we just stay in the wilderness, right, and just be with God? Be like monks, you know, just go away from community and be with him alone. Isn't that, isn't that great? It's like, no, that's not what God wants for us. So they, did, they lied, or they had a false report because of fear. They feared not God and his will. They feared other things. In order to be in a community like ours, like the Messianic community in Acts, you have to lay down your fear of fill on the blank. And especially, as we see in this example, of men, of other people, people who may be in power over you. Do not fear them because you will be in close proximity to others. This community, these communities we have, these fellowships require you to open yourself up to be known, does it not? You can't just come, receive, and leave. You could try, and you might be able to get away with it for a while, but you will be known. All your fears, all your sins too, will be known. But that kind of community is the kind of community that that creates a Peter who can be bold, who can be fearless, who can stand in front of the high court of men and say, I'm following God, not you. Um, Whatever it is you're doing here, stop it. You killed your Messiah. You realize that? (laughs) You did that. You got to repent. And if you don't, I mean, the Spirit is not going to come to you. So you figure this out because I've got bigger fish to fry um, because it's Friday and, and we do a fish fry on Fridays. <laughs> I want to share one more thing. Oh, my goodness. Okay, I want to share one more thing and then we'll be done. Uh, and then we'll, we'll go bless the kids in the um, gym and do the Baraka. Who's doing the Baraka this week? Who's doing the braca this week? Diego, can you do the braca? Okay, Diego did the How many of you, have, uh, raise your hand if you're familiar with John Eldridge. John Eldridge, he wrote Wild at Heart, Captivating. He also wrote Waking the Dead. Raise your hand if you've read, read this. Oh, okay, this is a book. My, uh, Tara has this book in a box somewhere. I couldn't find it, so I just bought another one. Uh, it'll stay in his library. It'll be here, but... I read this, uh, Waking the Dead. See if you can see that on the screen. I read this back in college, I think. I don't remember anything about it. I remember that, oh, this is a good book. It's about waking the dead. That's all I remember, because that's what it's called, <laughs> Waking the Dead. It's about, it's about the heart, and how the, the, our hearts are the treasures of the kingdom. And there's a chapter in here. Phil Rose called me up this week and said, Tim, I've got to share this with you. This will encourage you. Uh, and this, I think, will also encourage y'all. Get this book. Get this book. Check it out. Once we get it into the system, check it out. There is a chapter in here called Fellowships of the Heart. And he uses as a jumping off point for this chapter, Acts 4.32, which was at the beginning of this portion, all the believers were one in heart. One in heart. It's how he describes, then, Through the rest of this chapter, the importance of these small communities, these small fellowships, these bands of brothers, using examples from stories we all know, like the Lord of the Rings, like the Matrix, like um, the Wizard of Oz, all these stories that we're drawn to that we also see in scripture. Did Yeshua, when he was going around, did he have like hundreds of people surrounding him as as his core group? No, it was 12. He had a small band of brothers, a small group of people. So John Eldridge, who in 2003, 20 years ago, had been teaching this, that, that this kind of community that produces a Peter, that makes you into a Peter in the world, is available. We can do it. It must be small. It must be intimate. It will be messy. And we must fight for it. And let me just read one passage from this, and then we'll pray and be done. Unless you guys have any, any questions or comments? No? Okay. Again, this is from Waking the Dead by John Eldridge. This will be, Part of this is that it's, it's affirming for us in what we're doing, because sometimes I know it's hard to do these home fellowships, and we have to be reminded of, why, why are we doing this again? Oh, okay, all right, okay, yes, this is good. Because it's not the norm. It's not the norm in this culture. But listen to this. Small groups have become a part of the programming that most churches offer their people. For the most part, they are short-lived. There are two reasons. First, you can't just throw a random group of people together for a 12-week study of some kind and expect them to become intimate allies. The sort of devotion we want and need takes place within a shared life. Over the years, our fellowship has gone camping together. We play together, help one another move, paint a room, find work. We throw great parties. We fight for each other. This is how it was meant to be. I love this description of the early church. All the believers were one in heart, Acts 4.32. A camaraderie was being expressed there, a bond, an esprit de corps. That means they all loved the same thing. They all wanted the same thing. And they were bonded together to find it, come hell or high water. And hell or high water will come, friends. And this will be the test of whether or not your band will make it. If you are one in heart. Judas betrayed the brothers because his heart was never really with them. And I think this is true of Ananias and Sapphira. Their heart was not really with them. They deceived the community, and therefore they deceived God. Just as Cypher betrays the company of the Nebuchadnezzar, and as Boromir portrays or betrays the fellowship of the ring, My goodness, churches split over the size of the parking lot or what instruments to use during worship. Most churches are not one in heart. Second, most small groups aren't redemptive powerhouses because while the wineskin might be the right size, they don't have the right wine. You can do some study till you're blue in the face and it won't heal the brokenhearted or set the captives free. We come, we learn, we leave. It's not enough. Those hearts remain buried, broken, untouched, unknown. It is the way of the heart that turns a small fellowship into a redemptive community. It is knowing that you are at war, that God has chosen you, and evil is hunting you. And so a fellowship like Frodo's must protect you. God is calling together little communities of the heart to fight for one another and for the hearts of those who have not yet been set free. That camaraderie, that intimacy, that incredible impact by a few stout-hearted souls, that is available. It is the messianic life as Yeshua gave it to us. It is completely normal. That is normal. And that is why this episode of Ananias and Sapphira being snuffed out was so necessary. They were, he was, God was fighting for this community too. They were not to be allowed in this group because it was too important. It was too vulnerable at this stage of its development. Does that make sense? Okay. Any thoughts? Yeah, Dale. I think you have uh, uh, a menorah pattern back with uh, Joshua in chapter seven when they uh, destroyed Jericho and Achan took the gold, silver, Uh, clothing. Yeah. And he uh, what was the word? He uh, kept it back. Mm -hmm. That was meant for destruction. Meant for destruction, right? And uh, the way that uh, they went through a little judgment, and uh, they wound up, gosh, they did more than stoning. They they burned him and everything else. They killed all his family for it. But uh, that was inside the camp. And, and there's things that there's things that relate in the pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, clear back there as Joshua. hmm and, uh, and making a new Kohol, mm-hmm. a, a, a new group of people here in this new land. Yeah. And that's kind of what you have with the, the church being born, so to speak. Right. And uh, Peter's efforts. Right. So, yeah. Uh, so Dale br- brought up Joshua seven, and that there's a menorah pattern there. There's an example of that kind of something that that, wa- that was. Being introduced by transgression into a community that was young, that had to be dealt with, Uh, even though it seemed in the eyes of the person like nothing, right? Like I'm just picking up sticks, you know. I'm I'm just holding back some of this money that I'm offering. Like like our reasoning for disobedience is can be really we can be really good at that. We're really good at our logic and reasoning for disobedience. But if we have to look at it in God's eyes, like He's protecting this treasure on earth. And he's not going to allow anything to, to violate it or to hurt it. So we really need to be painted. So yeah, Joshua 7. So I encourage all of you listening, and even you guys too, to remember that and go back to Joshua 7 and see how this is also um, paralleled to what we're talking about. Okay, anything else? I'm sorry I went so long. Next week I'm going to have a timer here on the podium. Um, so anyway, so let's wrap up. But thank you for uh, for listening. So, um, Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for, thank you for Luke, um, the, the writer of these books in Luke and Acts, um, and how he did such a good job of of documenting the things that were so important to the community, the Messianic community in his day, uh, and that they would be that these words would be protected for thousands of years. And that we can open them up today in 2023 and still learn about you, about your people, about what the way of life was in those days and how it is we can move more toward that way of living today. So we thank you for your protection over, those, over the treasure that was their hearts, that they were one in heart. We thank you for protecting that, for showing how you are a good father for protecting their words so that they reach us today, so far, thousands of years removed from the events that occurred. Thank you so much. You're a good God. You give us this gift of your word, and you give us the gift of these people, Uh, the people in this room and the people listening and watching, whose hearts are for you. Let us never take that for granted. We thank you and we bless you in the name of Yeshua. Amen.